you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. I'm just going to warn you, we got a long passage to cover today. So that sermon won't be that long, but the passage is long. I'm just going to be doing a lot of reading of it because there's just a lot here and there's a lot of interesting elements to this. So we're going to go all the way through chapter 21 of Acts today, continuing our study of the book. And everything in the book of Acts is, a, is about to change. And Paul's life is not going to be the same for a very long time after this event occurs. And, and a lot of the threads that you sort of see in the whole narrative of the book of Acts all the way back to chapter 13 and even back before that you know Paul's story really sort of gets going in chapter 13 as a missionary but even before that th- these threads are starting to come together um, that are going to explain this big change that's about to happen in Paul's life. I think it was the first Star Wars movie where <laughs> Obi-Wan uh, tells Han Solo let's just say we'd like to avoid any imperial entanglements. Paul is about to experience imperial entanglements. Not a galactic empire but uh, the Roman Empire. So let me set the scene a bit. We've been away from the story and the narrative for a while. So Paul is traveling to Jerusalem in the company of Gentile converts, leaders in the Gentile churches, key men from Asia and from Europe and they they are bearing a gift of money for the poor in the church in Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. Uh, Jerusalem's had a struggling time, a lot of difficulty, persecution, poverty and they're bringing this gift of money and uh, uh, and it's more than that, it's a, it's a connection between the Gentile churches and the mother church in Jerusalem. That's really what it's about. So um, all of that's going on. It's a substantial gift that was collected over many months time. So Paul's mission as he sees it is to, is to build a bridge between the Jewish arm if you will and the Gentile arm of the church and, and make those relationships strong. Um, it's really the most pressing problem in the early church under Paul's ministry. He actually describes his plans. I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 15 um, because he talks about the plan that they're on in quite a bit of detail there. I've read it parts of it before but I'm going to do it again today. So this is Romans 15:25. I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs I will go on by way of you Rome to Spain. I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now I urge you brethren by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So he's going west to Rome by going east to Jerusalem first and he's going to end up, his plan is to end up in Rome and then go on to Spain and keep the gospel moving west. That's his plan. Okay? He's worried. You can tell he's worried here. Did you catch that? He wants prayer because that to be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. 
So even before he started out, he knew there was potential dangers in, in this trip. And the disobedient are a Jewish sect of Jesus followers. He's not talking about the Sanhedrin and the, the Jews that don't believe in Christ. He's talking about these Judaizing. It's a very strong movement in Jerusalem and it's been, um, it really started after the Jerusalem Council when they decided that Gentiles did not need to be Jewish to be saved and they made that really clear. This group splintered off and it's a pretty strong group. And then these same kind of people have dogged Paul all over his travels especially in Asia Minor but even into Greece um, trying to upset the faith of those that came to Christ among the Gentiles, the God-fearing Gentiles and and even the Jewish believers there. So um, when he stopped on the way to Jerusalem to talk with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 which we've been looking at, uh, he told them of these warnings that he's been receiving and he says it in Acts chapter 20 verse 22 he says behold, he tells this to the Ephesian elders right before he's about to sail off here Behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. So we will talk about how the Holy Spirit testifies to bonds and afflictions in a minute, but Paul goes on in verse 24 of Acts 20, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So the true church in Jerusalem needs strengthening. The church built on the gospel of God's grace needs strengthening. And this anti-Gentile zealous for Moses sect which is a spin-off already of Christianity um, is very powerful and it's quite numerous. And he just feels like he's failing if he doesn't labor for the gospel of grace in Jerusalem and bolster the church there. That's where the church began of course. So it, in that sense it is the mother church. And he believes that um, the Gentile men traveling with him bringing this financial gift which is pretty substantive will strengthen that church which is standing for the truth in the in this context of kind of fierce opposition from uh, Judaizing Christian people or at least that's what they're claiming to be. So um, he's putting his safety into God's hands in chapter 21 now we come to this place. So Luke does a lot of wonderful work in this chapter. Lots of detail, lots of information. He's basically just taking us from Ephesus to Jerusalem and then what starts to happen in Jerusalem. He doesn't rush. He's using up a lot of parchment space for this story. It's a long chapter. Um, and we know that Luke loves to talk about sea travel so he starts that way but uh, and those kind of details aren't very important to us you know we went here then we traveled there then we sailed from here and went to there but um, what's interesting is the interconnectedness we see amongst the different churches and how they welcomed each other and took care of each other and you could always stop there you know on a trip and that kind of a thing and how uh, traveling Christians always had lodging with believers along the way and that's you kind of see that here and then we meet some really interesting people some of whom we've met before so all of that's coming so verse 1 chapter 21 when we had departed from them and had set sail from the Ephesian elders we ran a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara and having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia we went aboard and set sail so Phoenicia is on the coast there of um, where um, Palestine you know that's that coastal area and having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia we set we went aboard and set sail when we came inside of Cyprus that's the island there 
leaving it on the left we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre so now they're on the coast um, to, to go to Israel for there the ship was to unload its cargo so they're on board they got it they got on board a cargo ship heading in that general direction they ended up at Tyre then in verse 4 we see how the Holy Spirit has been communicating with Paul and it's through um, people after looking up the disciples we stayed there seven days and they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem okay what does that mean they kept telling Paul through the spirit well the spirit is speaking through specific people and giving specific content about the future that's what we call the gift of prophecy yes it's exactly the same as the Old Testament gift of prophecy so some now some people when they read this passage we're looking at here they think that Paul is sinning here and you can make a case for that um, it kind of depends and it's debated whether this verse 4 thing is a command or it's the brothers interpretation of a message that they've received from the Lord a prophetic message in other words if the spirit is telling if the spirit is telling Paul prophetically a command of an of a prophet not to set foot there then Paul is definitely being disobedient to that because that's the Lord speaking through someone if the message is what it was before that bonds and afflictions await him and the people who care about him are saying based on that don't go then it's not a sin he's not disobeying God he's just making a different decision about that so that's something people disagree about on this this whole thing I think it's the latter I think it's Paul is is they're just they're receiving the word that he's going to be in a lot of trouble there and they're telling him out of their own hearts not to go I think that's what it is because that's what happens before and that's what happens after this the same thing we're going to see that in a sec so I really don't think Paul's companions would have gone either uh, in disobedience to the a prophecy from the spirit but they are all going so I don't think they would have done that if it had been a command not to go but it kind of does kind of read that way so you could you could interpret it legitimately that way anyway that's what I think so a week uh, after a week there they stay they stay there for a week and then they sail on verse 5 when our days there were ended we left and started on our journey while they all with wives and children escorted us until we were out of the city it's just a beautiful thing so they, he just stayed with them for a week and now the whole families are following out with him and going out to where they're going to sail from and all of that and um, uh, and then after kneeling down on the beach and praying we said farewell to one another verse 6 then we went on board the ship and they returned home again when we had finished the voyage from Tyre we arrived at Ptolemais and after greeting the brethren we stayed with them for a day now I haven't mentioned the word we in these passages you notice a lot of we did this we did that what does that mean Luke is there that's right so when he was going to Ephesus he went back up north uh, through Greece and picked up Luke who'd been pastoring the church in Philippi ever since they founded that church and now Luke is traveling again with Paul so this is a another we section of the book of Acts so Luke is there right very good so um, verse 8 is quite interesting we meet somebody we haven't talked about since Acts chapter 8 so on the next day we left and came to Caesarea and entering the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven we stayed with him remember Philip chapter 8 I know that was a long time ago <laughs> but he's like the main character in Acts chapter 8 and he was one of the seven men who were full of the spirit and of wisdom that were chosen by the church in Acts chapter 6 to solve their um, bread distribution problem remember the 
um, Greek-speaking Jews were feeling left out and they tried to fix that situation. They appointed seven men, godly men, full of wisdom and he was one of those men. And then when the apostles laid their hands on those men to um, commission them, an apostolic gift was given to Philip and he could do great miracles. And so then in Acts chapter 8 he goes up into uh, Samaria in that region and starts preaching the gospel and doing incredible miracles because now he has that power. Um, so that's it's kind of an amazing person there. So um, after the apostles laid hands on him he could do all of this. So Paul stays at Philip's house and it's a lot of years later after Acts chapter 8 and Philip has four grown daughters. All of them have the gift of prophecy. So verse 9 says now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. Now that's kind of cool having a whole prophetic family there. He probably couldn't get away with much around his family. Mm. In fact imagine marrying one of Philip's girls. She and all the sisters have prophetic insight and they could be talking about you. Talking about you in the spirit that wouldn't be good. Maybe that's why they're virgin daughters I don't know but um, anyway it's a very special family. That's just a joke. I'm sure they were wonderful girls. But (laughs) There seems to have been an especially high regard for another prophet named Agabus and we learned about him earlier but look at verse 10 it says we are staying there for some days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So he's a prophet too and he's from Jerusalem. Now we heard about him in Acts chapter 11 just a little blurb about him in Acts chapter 11 verse 27. Barnabas had brought Saul, Paul, to Antioch in Syria and there they taught together in the church in Antioch for a year. Barnabas and Paul, they were a team. Sometime during that year, around AD 44 or so, Agabus came to visit and this is Acts 11:27. It says, now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit, so this is a prophecy, that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world and this took place in the reign of Claudius. So he makes a, he's kind of a famous person because this is not a little prophecy about your life or this event or this ministry. It was about a major weather event, a a, a coming thing, a drought. So um, he became really well known because it happened as he said. And of course if a prophet says something it's going to happen. That makes that's what makes him a prophet. So it's a major prophetic word. Very helpful for everyone for future planning because this drought was coming. So now it's like a dozen years later. Quite a bit later. And Agabus comes down from Jerusalem. Comes down means over. (laughs) Everything's down from Jerusalem because it's on a hill and it's the prominent city of the world biblically. So everything's down when you leave there. So he's coming down from Jerusalem to see Paul. So Acts 21.11, coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. So he takes Paul's belt and wraps himself up and ties himself up and says this is what's going to happen to the guy that owns this belt. Paul. (laughs) Okay. And this way the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now bonds and afflictions is starting to become much more specified. So Agabus has more detail about what's going to happen. And here again the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't say don't go. But in quite a bit of detail the Spirit of the Lord is describing what's going to happen. 
everybody else thinks Paul shouldn't go because that's going to happen. Why would they say that? Because they love him. They love Paul, right? So the reaction to the prophecy where the people who love Paul says don't go is in verse 12. When they had heard this, we, that includes Luke, as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem because they love him. They know this is serious business. If he gets arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Romans, anything could happen. Anything could happen. So they're worried about this. So they're, they're weeping as they plead with him. And notice they use the word, word we there again. So Luke's part of this appeal. So his teammate, his buddy, his close companion, Paul don't go. Paul don't go. And they're crying. They're crying. Verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am, I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was alone in his belief that he needed to be present when this gift came to Jerusalem and he needed to be part of this. Their concern for him was breaking his heart because that's where his heart was and he wanted only to serve Christ even if it meant death. So the question is, was, is he right? Is Paul right or is he being stubborn? You know, it's hard to say. As a rule, if everybody's telling you the same thing people that are important in your life and people that are wise and good, if they're all telling you the same thing, you probably need to listen to them, right? We had an incident some years ago where the, the pastor of this church was being really stubborn and the leadership and the elders and their wives and some of the people had to sit him down and tell him that he was being really stubborn and to change his mind about something and he did, thankfully. It was me, it was me. <laughs> <laughs> they were right and I should have listened sooner to what people were trying to tell me. Anyway, but gen generally that's true, thank you. Solomon in the book of Proverbs suggests several times that success and victory depends on having many counselors, right? That's usually a good thing. That just might, it might just mean make sure you have all the facts, get different perspectives and stuff like that. Uh, get a, or it could mean getting a consensus, like you know, you know, it's like the President of the United States when he has all these people around him and, it, and good presidents are usually wise to have a variety of counselors with different points of view to give them all the perspectives so they can make a final decision. That's pretty normal. And uh, that's just a good thing to do typically in life is to consult with other people. Different perspectives are helpful in making good decisions. But keeping all of that in mind, it's also true that we are compelled to follow the Lord's leading no matter how many people say don't do that if we're correct, you know. So several renowned I can think of several major players in the history of missions in the church that were told by everybody not to go in the mission field. I mean William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Gladys Aylward, I mean people that inspired so many other people to go in the mission field and did such incredible work. Everybody said don't go, you're not qualified, who are you to go and that kind of thing you know and they knew that they needed to go and they went and changed the world so there's that side of it too. So Paul might be being stubbornly foolish here, he might be, but he feels so strongly that he's right, he says, you're breaking my heart pleading with me this way, <laughs> because I gotta go. And he does understand the risks, and I think that's kind of the key point there. I am willing to die for the Lord Jesus. If that's what it means, that's okay. Paul was a killer of other Christians, remember, when he was, before he became Paul, the apostle. He was a killer of Christians, so he knows it from that side, and he's willing to go through that himself. He was actually the killer. So I'm, I'm sure he feels like it's only justice if he has to lay down his life for Jesus. But um, he, he knows the risks. He just thinks his 
role in Jerusalem is essential for this task of bringing the churches together. He just thinks his particular place is essential to do that. So he can't just send the other guys. He can't let Luke tell the story. Luke wasn't there with all the adventures that Paul had. Luke was stuck in Philippi, which is great. But um, you know, he, he wants to tell his story. He wants to bolster them and strengthen them and give them courage and tell what God's doing among the Gentiles from his own perspective. So his mind is made up. Verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we, that's Luke saying, we all fell silent remarking the will of the Lord be done. What else are they going to say right? No. Okay we're going. You're going with us but the will of the Lord be done. Which is a good response. They're, they're going to rest in God's sovereign will. So off they go to Jerusalem. The band of brothers Paul, Luke and the men from the Gentile areas. Jerusalem's about 65 miles from Caesarea. It's several days walk. Verse 15. After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with, with whom we were to lodge. And there again, there's along the way, there's a Christian brother, he's got a house, he's willing to let people stay there as they're traveling back and forth. After we arrived in Jerusalem, verse 17, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So James is the, kind of the lead pastor in Jerusalem. He was the brother of Jesus. And uh, this isn't the Apostle James, this is um, James, James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament. Verse 19, after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done. This is Paul relating. The things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. It's just an amazing thing. The church is being planted and the gospel going out and abounding through whole areas, changing the culture around there. And they're just thrilled. All the stuff he says about what happened in Asia Minor, what happened in Macedonia, what happened in Thessaly, what happened in Greece. I mean it's just incredible. So they're thrilled. But fairly quickly, it seems like that, they want to move on to this other matter which is dealing with this Judaizing sect that exists in Jerusalem. And they have a plan for Paul to alleviate some of the Judaizing Christians uh, concerns but not compromising the gospel at the same time. So they're trying to make Paul's ministry more palatable to them. So they, because what they're saying about Paul really isn't true. And uh, we're, we're going to get to that right now. They, they hated Paul, this, this sect. They, they think he's the one that wrecked Christianity and, and he's, the, he's really the bad guy. And of course we, you know, we see it in our culture today, right? We have this very polarized culture and people on both sides are more than willing to lie about other people and paint them in the most horrible light possible. They goes both ways. And of course our side does it less. <laughs> both, both sides think. But um, anyway, that kind of stuff's happening all the time. But uh, provocateurs and troublemakers like to jump on that tension and feed it by telling exaggerating stories or lying about people and things like that. That always happens. It's human nature. It's sinful human nature. But it's human nature. So the Judaizing teachers that Paul has been battling in Asia and in Greece are in Jerusalem. So some of the same people are there in Jerusalem. And they basically said that Paul's Christianity is a, an attack on Moses. In, in a, an attack on God's revealed will to Abraham and to Moses. So remember this sect is made up of Jews who believe in Jesus in some way. I mean they have some sort of commitment to Jesus as the Messiah. And it's not a small group. So the second part of verse 20 it says they said to him you see brother 
how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? Verse 22. So this is James the leaders of the church of Jerusalem talking about this. They will certainly hear that you have come. So word's going to get around to them eventually that you're here in town. So the accusation against Paul is, you know what's actually really similar to the accusation made against Stephen back in Acts chapter 7? Do you remember that where Stephen gives this long sermon and they end up stoning him to death? Um, the, the attack on him this is way back in Acts 7:11. it says they secretly induced men to say we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God this is of Stephen way back then and Paul was part of the other side on this the attackers they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council and they put forward false witnesses who said this is talking about Stephen in a court now this man incessantly speaks against this holy place the temple and the law for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs of Moses which he handed down to us. So it's kind of similar kind of similar accusations there. So now they are saying that Paul is teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles out in the dispersion out throughout the Roman Empire to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to Jewish customs. That's what the accusation is. Did Paul do that? Did Paul do that? Did he tell the Jews in Gentile lands to forsake Moses? Did he say not to circumcise their children? No he really didn't do that. He did say salvation is not connected to circumcision. He said that. But by the grace salvation comes by grace through the shed blood of Jesus. He did say circumcision was not saving and it's neither here nor there with regard to salvation. In fact twice in the book of Galatians he says circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. It doesn't matter. But he's not against it. He's never told anybody not to circumcise their children. Did Paul forbid people from walking according to Jewish customs? No he didn't do that either. Customs, special days, the feasts, the dietary laws. He left that up to the individual or the family. They could do that. Always remember in any secondary issues like that. Romans chapter 14 I'm sure you've read it. But there's a really important discussion there. For all Christians who want to judge other Christians based on things that they think they should do. Right? This is what I do and you need to do this too. But it's not clear in the Bible. But I'm I'm sure about it. So I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 14 verse 5. This is what Paul was saying. So this is actually writing to um, a church. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So if you want to have Passover and do that and celebrate the feasts and do that. That's perfectly fine. And if a Gentile doesn't want to do that that's fine. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord for he gives thanks to God. He who does eats not. By eats not he means not ever eating. He means not eating kosher. Right? 
For the Lord he does not eat and he gives thanks to God. For, for not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is uh, Romans 14.10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, verse 13, Romans 14, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So that's what Paul taught. And if you want to circumcise your children, he had no problem with it. But if you're circumcising them to be saved, he has a problem with that that's a false doctrine that's a false teaching but he's not against their children being circumcised these traditions Jewish practices that were going on in the first century they're okay they're not harmful they're, in, they're innocent so he's not against them they only become harmful when you start to try to impose them on people who are free from those things by Christ and none of the traditions are saving they, all those traditions are pointing to Jesus and he's the savior. So if you have him you have everything. But if you want to do those traditions that's fine. But if you don't care about them that's fine too if you have Jesus. So that's how Paul taught. And he says don't judge other people with regard to those things. So the stories and the rumors about Paul are false. He did not forbid those things. The Judaizing sect though that is full of that understanding they have to be corrected or helped or convinced or something. So the elders in the Jerusalem church have thought about this and thought about this. They knew Paul was coming and they've come up with a plan. And basically it's this. Paul we want you to do some very Jewish things in public. That's the plan. This will prove that you are not against Moses or against the customs, the Jewish way of life. It'll prove that to them. So Acts 21 verse 23. Therefore do this that we tell you we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. Now this vow is not really too dissimilar. It might even be the same thing that Paul talked about Luke talked about in Acts chapter 18 verse 18 where Paul cut his hair and then he had to travel to Jerusalem to present it in the temple. That was a custom, sort of a Nazarite vow type thing. And uh, we don't know all that that entailed because a lot of the details have been lost to history. But it involved cutting your hair and presenting it to the Lord in the temple. It was a week-long sort of purification ritual thing. Is that a sin to do that? No, it's not a sin. It's, a, it's voluntary. You can do it if you want to. It doesn't hurt anything. And Paul was not against that practice because he did something very much like it in Acts chapter 18. So in verse 25 the church leaders assure him that they believe like he does that the Gentiles are not under the law of Moses or the customs of Israel and they even quote in verse 25 here the letter that the Gentile uh, that the Jerusalem church sent to all the Gentile churches after the Jerusalem council. Do you remember that letter? They quote it. Verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. So 
so what they're, what they're doing by saying this to Paul, like Paul knew that he was there, but they're saying we still believe those things. We are sticking with what was agreed by the Jerusalem Council, the, the obligations that we're putting on the Gentiles to do those four things and that's it. That's all and we're still there. We're still there Paul. But we'd like you to do this other thing. And Luke doesn't tell us what Paul thought about that but he agrees to do it. He, he's certainly aware of all the prophecies he's received about bonds and afflictions awaiting him so he's ready to go. And those bonds and afflictions do await him. So the plan turns out to be a spectacular failure. Verse 26. Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself along with them went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days was almost over the Jews from Asia so Jews from where Paul had preached and planted churches that were part of this Judaizing sect recognize him at the temple. Hey that's that's him. Upon seeing him in the temple began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him crying out verse 28 here men of Israel come to our aid this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place and besides he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul had been seen earlier in the streets with a Gentile, Trophimus, who was from Ephesus, and they're assuming that he brought him inside the temple, which is totally forbidden and totally wicked in their minds. So Judaizers from Asia are there, they see him, they accuse him of defiling the temple. Now he didn't do that, Trophimus was not part of this group that went into the temple. He wasn't, but they'd seen him earlier. So they're making up a lie. They're not checking out the facts. They're freaking out. Sometimes when you freak out, you assume things that are wrong and you believe them with all your heart because you're freaking out, right? So you don't want to freak out too often. And Paul would never do that. He would never bring a Gentile past the wall. They're, they had a wall. Um, Archaeologists have discovered this, the signs that were placed on this wall in the temple in Jerusalem. They've actually got several uh, copies of them. They weren't written in Hebrew. They were written in Latin and Greek. And mainly Greek ones are the ones that have been found. And they threaten death for anybody who goes around this wall this, uh, that's surrounding the temple. So the temple had these different courtyards and you could go in. There was a Gentile one, one that where the women could go, then one where only men could go, and then in the sanctuary area. And there was this thing where the Gentiles couldn't go past this certain place. And here's actually the, here's what the sign said, that they've actually found this. It's in, it's carved in stone. Foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade, that's the wall, or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. (laughs) So it's a pretty strong warning. (laughs) So if they found a Gentile in there, the temple police would come and take you away and you'd be put to death. That's pretty clear, pretty clear sign, you know. So they're accusing Paul of bringing a, a Gentile in beyond that barrier, which is a very wicked thing to do in their mind. So they're screaming, they're freaking out. Um, the shouting quickly becomes a mob, verse 30. And again, there's no concern for the truth here. It's just when mobs start, every, the truth goes out the window. Nobody asks questions, right? It just gets crazy. Then all the city was provoked. 
And the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Shut the doors of the temple away from this horrible man. Don't let him in. This is so much like what happened to Stephen. It's so much like it. Uh, The mob dragged off. He was stoned to death. Well, the uproar is so great, they can hear it in the fortress of Antonia, which is actually connected to the temple. The Romans, uh, Herod built this fort. It's a huge fortification directly attached to the temple. There were a couple of kind of bridge things that came across to it and there was this great stone stairway that came up to it from the temple. You come down and go right up into this huge fortress. It's called the Fortress of Antonia because Mark Antony was a friend of Herod the Great and he named it after him. So uh, verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort and all of Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he, the commander of the cohort, took along some soldiers and centurions and now if there's more than one centurion we're talking a lot of soldiers so it's not like 10 guys it's probably dozens maybe a hundred or more um, Roman soldiers are running out into the city okay and when they saw the commander and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul well we weren't told they were beating Paul but now we find out that they were so they're beating him up and they we, hello sir you know they kind of stopped took their hands off verse 33 then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and he began asking who he was and what he had done. So this large number of Roman soldiers is there in a fanatically crazy mob crowd. The commander takes charge of the man being beaten who's Paul and tries to find out what's going on. Verse 34, but the crowd, among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, so this is this huge stairway thing that goes up to the, to- the, the gates of the fortress of Antonia. So the, they're carrying him up the stairs. He was carried by the soldiers, verse 35, because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them. So the Romans are taking him off and they're following. Away with him, away with him, they shout. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? <laughs> And he's speaking perfect Greek. And he said, do you know Greek? And he goes, this is really interesting, verse 38. It's just odd that it's in there because we don't have any background to this. But he goes, oh, then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Now either somebody dropped that idea into his ear or he'd been thinking about that guy or whatever. But anyway, that's who he thought he was at first when he he arrested him. So um, brought him in. So <laughs> Paul says, no, <laughs> not that guy. And the reason he's surprised is because this Egyptian guy would probably wouldn't speak native Greek. And Paul is speaking it like a native because, verse 39, Paul says, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. So Tarsus was a free city of Rome, a place known for its culture and its schools and its commercial power. Any Jew that grew up there would, would speak Greek like a native, not like an Egyptian in the desert. So, um, so that's why he's surprised. He goes, oh, I thought you were this guy. No, that's not me. So Paul is not rebel scum from the desert, right? So he wants to speak and the commander gives him permission, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul standing on the stairs motioned to the people with his hand and when there was a great hush so here's Paul at the top of this giant stairway flanked by dozens at least maybe hundred Roman soldiers 
all in their fine regalia and all that. And the whole scene is quiet. This hush comes across the whole scene. This is his moment in Jerusalem to talk to these people. And verse 40 says, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect saying, and we're out of time. So <laughs> next week, we'll kind of we'll pick it up there in Acts chapter 22. <laughs> and next week, we're going we're to talk a little bit more about prophecy next week too because um, a, a new theory has been put forth in the church over the last several decades saying that Agabus was a f- wrong. Agabus was wrong in the prophecy that he made and evangelicals are saying that. So I want to talk about that a little bit next week too because uh, I don't think he was wrong but the ramifications of that theory are actually huge for the modern church so that's something to talk about. So come back next week and we'll find out what Paul says. Let's pray. You can actually read it <coughs> before then. <laughs> Our great Father in heaven, how wonderful the scriptures are to portray events in such clear and realistic terms. We see the church here standing for the truth and loving and encouraging each other and you ordained all of these events including Paul's arrest that we could take courage and that we could be bold for you and uh, we, we ask you to give us that kind of courage and Paul's love for the church and his love for the unity of the church. And we pray that um, you would grant us the same passions that he had. In Christ's name we pray, amen.